Welcome to The Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. Whenever I teach, like I told you, I love how Paul teaches. Paul would teach a concept and then he will anticipate a question, then answer the question. And so I anticipated a couple of questions that some of the proponents of baptism, especially with water, may have your thoughts go straight to when we talk about baptism. One baptism. First of all, scripture cannot lie. Right? And the posture of a believer, as your name implies, is to believe what scripture says. Scripture does not contradict scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Scripture does not attack scripture. So you cannot use one scripture to attack. That's poor studyship, for lack of a better word. That's poor application of the word to allow or to take one scripture to attack another. But unfortunately, we do that a lot in church. And so sometimes... Something is brought up from the word. Ephesians 4, we saw very clearly, for there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You saw clearly the Baptist introducing and explaining his ministry. I will baptize you with water. Somebody will come, will baptize you with another substance, not water. And it says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And this was specifically to the Jews. It's important you understand that specifically to the Jews. John the Baptist was never, hear me carefully, was never sent to the world. John the Baptist was not a world evangelist. No, we keep, we keep equating John's ministry with salvation. That's the problem. John was sent to a specific people at a specific time. He had a specific assignment. Prepare the way for the Lord. He was speaking to the Lord's people. To repent, to change their minds so that they can receive the Lord when he comes to take away their sin. Someday I will teach to you the twofold nature of the salvation ministry of Jesus. Jesus primarily, he, he came to save the world. But his primary target for receiving salvation was the Jews. The Jews. People say all the time that Paul was a minister to the uncircumcised. He was the one that went to the Gentiles. No, Peter was the first person to preach to the Gentiles. To Cornelius and his house. And he refused. Why will I take this thing and go and give to a Gentile? Paul himself did not start ministry preaching to Gentiles. It was divine frustration that forced Paul to turn himself to us. That's the best way to define it. Divine frustration. Because Paul's ministry, his desire was to see the Jews saved. It's when they kept rejecting him that he said, okay, you're on your own then, I'll go to the Gentiles. And we were here waiting. Then he starts to say the apostle unto the uncircumcised or the Gentiles. So let's be careful how we define this thing. Well, John wasn't sent to the world. He was sent, his ministry was specifically to prepare Israel to identify and receive the ministry of Jesus. It was Israel that was supposed to export the salvation message to the world. That was God's divine agenda for Israel. And we're not talking about that today. But it was Israel to receive the ministry of Jesus, receive the ministry of reconciliation, and then take it to the world. 
Now, because they refused, and God knew they would refuse, we came into it. So Paul starts teaching us in Romans that we are like a wild olive grafted into the vine. So he says from chapter 10 into chapter 11, be careful how you talk about Israel. Because it's the fact that they refuse this thing that has brought you into it. That's the context of Romans 11. Don't be talking about Israel anyhow. They are your brothers. Even though yet in darkness, God yet has a plan for them. This is the backdrop against which you understand the ministry of John the Baptist. He was sent to them. Do you understand? When Jesus came, Jesus came to Israel. He came for the world. For the world. For the world to Israel. He came for the world. God so loved the world he gave. Jesus came, was born. A child is born, a son is given. To Israel. John 1.11, he came to his own. His own, and they received him not. His own cannot refer to believers. There was no believers until he came. His own cannot refer to the church. There was no church until he died. So his own in John 1.11 cannot refer to the saints. Because no one was sanctified on death by the blood. So you can now read into the scriptures in 2020 or 2021 a meaning that it did not have when it was written. If there were believers when Jesus came, why did he bother to come? So in saying he came to his own, he's saying he came to the Jews. And his own did not receive him. A prophet, he goes on to say, is not without honor except in his own home among his own people. The least miracles Jesus did in his three years ministry was in Nazareth because they did not receive him. So he healed a few sick, the Bible says. And he went on. When the Seraphonician woman came to him and talked to him about her child who was being troubled, what did he say to her? He said, it is not meet to give the bread of the children to the dogs. And he goes on to say, for I was not sent except unto the lost sheep of Israel. Are you listening to me? It should have been them exporting the gospel to the nations. The proximity of Israel would have been Samaria. That's why Jesus said in Judea, Samaria. Think geographically when Jesus says, starting at Judea, then Samaria. Samaria used to be Israel. Solomon was the last king of a united Israel. When Solomon died, Rehoboam became king. Jeroboam, son of Nabat, some evil guy, schemed. He was not even in the lineage of, of David. Schemed and then took ten tribes of the north. And it was those ten tribes of the north that now became known as the nation of Israel. Headquartered in Samaria. Leaving two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Becoming the nation of Judah. In which you had Jerusalem, the city of David. Does that make sense? Hence the bitterness between Judah and Israel. So if you keep reading from 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you keep seeing where this one was king in Israel and that one was king in Judah. Make sense? Yes, now he is called the lion of the tribe of Judah because he came from the tribe of Benjamin. So start in Judea, the land of Judah, and then naturally Samaria, and then consequently the uttermost parts of the earth. John the Baptist came to prepare Israel to receive Jesus. That's what his baptism was for. Using water. Does that make sense? Now you came, you met Jesus. Jesus met you. You heard the gospel, you believed, you are saved. What's the problem? Water for what? 
One, you're not a Jew. Two, you have, received, you have believed the gospel. So it's not we have to prepare you to. You have believed the gospel. And that brings you into one baptism. Oh, but pastor, you know you're talking about it. How about Matthew 28, 19? How about Mark 16, 16? So that I came today to deal with. Commanding them to baptize in the name of the Father. And the Son. And the Holy Spirit. That scripture is a problem. Or is it? Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, Jesus speaking, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Other scripture, Mark, Mark 16, 16. Another interesting one. Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be damned or will be condemned. Uh, if you're talking baptism and saying that it's not for your salvation, these two scriptures are a problem. So just before you go and think that you understand baptism, let's talk a little bit more about it and shed light on the scriptures. So first of all, Matthew 28, 19. One of the most heavily debated scriptures in the history of of the scriptures. Matthew 28. Every debate. From every quarter. Of theology. A gray area of scripture. And this will help everybody in your Bible study. Is interpreted. By a scripture that is clear. Does that make sense? So every time there is a scripture that is unclear. Or that is a gray area. The principle of biblical interpretation. Is to interpret that gray scripture. With a clear scripture. Make sense? So a scripture that is a gray area cannot become doctrine. So where there is a gray scripture or an unclear scripture, you apply a clear scripture in order to interpret it. Now, with that in mind, Matthew 28, 19 is a gray scripture. It's a gray scripture because it is the only time baptism or any application of any ordinance is mentioned in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the entire Bible. And that already, I'm sure everybody here will agree, has become so doctrinal and dogmatic. We lay, we commission cars and houses and businesses and exam and babies, both in their naming and dedication, everything in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We pray over dead bodies even. And how are we administering this prayer? In the name of the Father, the Son, from one scripture only. It's the only time you hear in the name of the Father, Son. Now, don't get me wrong. We know there's Father and Son, Logos, and Spirit, Numa. We know that. And then we know there's baptism. And now we know there's only one. And this one says baptism in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But let's look at a few clear texts before we come back here. Acts chapter 2. Therefore let all the house of Israel now know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, God has made him Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, start, start paying attention to where the confusion start to begin. 
men and brethren, what shall we do? 38. And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name. Not baptized with water in the name. It says be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. He said repent and be baptized. He didn't say be baptized in repentance. Yes. Repent. Complete this change of heart and be baptized in the name of Jesus. This wasn't John's baptism he was referring to. Now both the early church as well as subsequent iterations of the church saw and interpreted this to become water baptism for remission of sins. Where a vital scripture is misinterpreted, a vital truth is lost. John's baptism was baptizing them for repentance using water. While making it clear that the medium will change. The purpose will change. The Baptist will change. Believers are not baptized by John the Baptist. We are baptized by Jesus the Baptist. He's the real Baptist. Who the old old baby Baptist said one is coming who is mightier than I. Choose your Baptist. One is coming who is mightier than I. I am baptizing at my level with water for repentance. One is coming. See, I can't even touch his sandals. What does that tell you? I'm not worthy because it's a sinner that was baptizing sinners. And both the Baptist and the baptized were still sinners. After the swim. That's why as soon as he saw Jesus, he said, hey, 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 I, I need to be baptized of you. Because I know what your baptism will be like. And I know what your baptism will do. And then you come to me to baptize you. It's a baby baptism. Baptizing for repentance. As a symbol of a readiness to receive he who is forgiveness of sin. But then Peter says to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. John did not baptize in the name of Jesus. John never applied the name and therefore could not have baptized in the name of Jesus. How much more in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? You get that? In the same verse, Acts 2.38, it says, repent and be baptized in the name. And this is Peter who was with Jesus. This is Luke who is quoting Peter because Luke was there or at least received eyewitness accounts when he wrote to Theophilus. And he's quoting Peter who is quoting Jesus. And Peter says, Baptize, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the earth. Now notice the connection to baptism in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Kai received the Holy Spirit. If it were water baptism by which you receive the Holy Spirit, then as soon as you came out of the water, you should have come out of the water, Radalama Kozoba, because as you come out of the water, you come out in the Holy Spirit. Oh no, but you come out of water, and we send you to another class. Holy Ghost baptism class. That cannot be this baptism. And it cannot be one baptism. And scripture cannot be lying when it says one baptism. But it says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift. Or which is to say, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Because this baptism, the medium is the Spirit. 
The medium for that baptism of Jesus is the Spirit. Nothing else. And the early church didn't understand it. So at, at some early points in the post-resurrection early church, you still found them dabbling as Jews with water baptism because they had no understanding. And while we'll come back to that, see the third thing in that verse is that they are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Full stop. Peter, who was with Jesus, did not say baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says be baptized in the name of Jesus and not in the mention. I've taught you that here. Onomatos, baptized in the consciousness, in the authority, in the recognition of the person and ministry of Jesus. That's clear. Now with these lenses, we're looking at Matthew 28, 19. You know, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Maybe I should even put here that there's a lot of theologians and some Bible translations that omit Matthew 28, 19. There's a lot of early manuscripts of the Bible that don't have verse 19 in it. I'm working on the worst case scenario assumption that this scripture is in the Bible. Not that I don't know that in some manuscripts is missing because it's heavily debated. Heavily. So I'm working on the worst case scenario assumption is in the Bible. Let's deal with it. There's an elephant in the scriptures. Does that make sense? So whether it's there or not, we'll deal with it and we'll exegete it using the clear to interpret the unclear. Does that make sense? Okay. So in many theological circles, Matthew 28, 19 is a disputed text of scripture. Including Mark 16, which we'll come to shortly. In original text, Mark 16 ends at verse 8. A footnote under Mark 16 will show you that there are three different ways Mark chapter 16 ends. Short version, short version with a benediction, and long version. And only few people can corroborate the long version. And even the short version, they took it out of most scriptures because the short version says that God sent them out to declare this beautiful message of eternal salvation. They removed it. It's too heavy for people to see that they have eternal salvation. So they buried it. Some end with the short version. Very few old and faithful scripts end with the short version with that benediction. And general others end with the long version. Because you see, when it comes to Bible writing, the oldest English translations of the Bible were written from manuscripts that are now younger. Okay? And the more recent translations of the Bible have now been written by manuscripts that were older, that have been discovered after the other manuscripts from which the older English translations were written. Let me give you an example. So, for instance, we have New King James or King James written from a manuscript found, say, 3,000 years ago. Does that make sense? And just a few years ago, for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Egypt and some other writings and manuscripts that are dated, let's say, 4,000 years ago. Does that make sense? So, the Net Bible, the NET Bible, or the ESV, English Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, if NASV, some of these newer translations, now have the privilege of older manuscripts, which are generally more accurate than newer manuscripts. Because scribes sometimes, scribes sometimes made mistakes of translation in copying verbally what was, because these guys copied verbally. They handed stuff down verbally 
before papyrus scrolls began to be developed and eventually paper came to be. So, so ultimately, there's human error here and there, not in the scriptures, but in its translation and therefore interpretation. The scriptures are without error. So when you look at the scriptures, in the light of the entire scriptures, clarity comes. Does that make sense? So older manuscripts that are being found have certain omissions or additions that scholars have to pay attention to and harmonize the account of scripture. Does that make sense? So Matthew 28, 19 is one of them scriptures. But then it's there, so let's deal with it like it's there. Acts 8, 12. Look at this. But when they believed Philip, this was Philip, as he preached things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And when the apostles were in Jerusalem heard, as Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come to them, preached for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as at yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what's happening here? Folks are hearing people who are not with Jesus. This is Philip. And people in a different place who are hearing the gospel, believing, and are being made to be baptized. It doesn't state the medium, but it implies the medium. And what's that medium? Water. Should they have been baptizing with water? No. Because the name of Jesus was never used to baptize with water. John the Baptist never baptized with water in the name or into the name. Those are two things that don't mix. Do you understand now? So people start to baptize with water in the name of Jesus, which is wrong. But that's slightly, by the way, they were baptizing in the name of Jesus. Again, you don't see them baptizing in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were baptizing in the name of Jesus. Another school of thought has it that because it's the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and because in Jesus it pleased the Father that the fullness of the Godhead should dwell, that therefore saying in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit encapsulates in Jesus, which is a great thought, but not one that this scripture brings out explicitly. So concept-wise, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense, concept-wise. The, 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 the Father, Son, Spirit, all in him, after all, he's called everlasting Father. You know, he says, I am my Father, are one. The Spirit of God in Romans 8 is the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, you know, 8, 9, and 10. You know, so in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit can mean, you know, all of them encapsulated in Jesus. It's, it's true, but it's with the benefit of hindsight that we can even suggest this. Not with the benefit of the scripture and what it says. So let's stick to what it says. And explain what it says. Acts 10.44 While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. While, while, while. Peter was preaching to people about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, he was taking too much time, talking too much. As if God needed all his plenty talking. So while he was still speaking these words, I've said this, that the reason why we can read it now and see while we were, Peter was still speaking, was because somebody was writing. And so the person had to, he was writing all Peter was saying. So how do I say how much Peter has said and then pause it and add where the Holy Spirit came in? Let me just finish saying all that Peter said. It's a style of writing. 
let me finish reporting all that Peter said. And then I would then explain that this thing that Peter said, it was when he was saying it that the Holy Spirit fell. It's literary writing. Does that make sense? Instead of breaking what Peter was saying, let me write out all that Peter said. Make sense? So Luke writes out all that Peter said. Peter starts speaking from 34. Acts 10. He starts speaking from 34 to 43. When the Holy Spirit fell in verse 44, was somewhere in between 34 and 43. Then Peter opened his mouth, 34, and said, or and started to say, right? Are you there? In truth, I perceive the word that God shows no partiality, rather. But in every nation, whoever fears him, have you seen that? Whose righteousness is accepted by him. He goes on the way to verse 43. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission, which is to say forgiveness of sins, right? So he speaks 34 right through to 43, and then 44, while Peter was still speaking these words. What words? 34 to 43. Does that make sense? So, I mean, he had two choices, Luke. He could have either stopped at the point where the Holy Spirit fell, and just said, uh, at this point, the Holy Spirit fell, and after this Holy Spirit fell, Peter continued speaking until he finished speaking all this. Do you understand? Instead, he finishes saying all that Peter said. That also implies that Holy Spirit fell. Peter was still talking. Yes. Peter was almost saying, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing. Let's assume he was here. You know, oppressed by the devil for God was with him and we are witnesses of all things. The Holy Spirit has already fallen. We are witnesses of all things that he did both in the land of Jews in Jerusalem when they killed the hanging on the tree. Him God raised over the third day and of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter 45 because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out. 45. As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. See 46. For they heard them speak with tongues. And magnify God. Were these people saved or not? At this point, talk to me. At this point, are they saved or not? Because the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them. And they began to speak with tongues and magnify God. See the problem that has caused the church to get into such trouble. Then Peter said, can anyone forbid water? Tipity. For they heard them speaking and supernaturally giving languages and passionately praising God. Peter said, how could anyone object to these people being baptized? Suggesting, according to Bible nomenclature, that people around began to talk and say they, they, they cannot be saved though. Can't be saved. And, and other people who came with Peter and saying, but they should not be baptized. No, it's, it's wrong for these people who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit to be put in water. It is that school of thought that Peter answers and says, Who is for, why are you forbidding them from being baptized in water? Can anyone forbid water? Or can anyone have a problem with these people who have been saved and filled with the Holy Ghost to be dunked in water again? So you see, they got the other wrong. And I've explained this over and over. There are things we will not... Holy Spirit, help me. I think I mentioned this last Sunday. Not everything written in the scriptures is written for you to do. Some things don't apply to you. 
And it takes the right division of the word of truth to get that. Some things are written to you so you can have examples. So you can learn how not to do some things. Do you understand? Peter was not married, so we must all not marry. That's not how scripture teaches. That's not how scripture teaches. But you're able to look at that thing in the light of the broader picture. And in the light of the broader picture, it is out of place to dunk somebody who has received the gift of the Spirit in water. That's why Peter himself had great regard for Paul. He says, Paul's words are difficult, I know. So people twist them as they twist the rest of the scriptures. That was Peter speaking. Peter, who was with Jesus, who told Jesus, my friend, how are you saying somebody touch you? All of us touch you. He's not touching you like this. It's not like this. That's how Peter would have spoken in Nigerian terms. When Jesus is asking, somebody touch me, virtue left me. He's like, all of us are here pressing you. You are saying somebody touched you. All of us touched you. The same Peter that said, Bill lost three tenths. Same Peter that said, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. Same Peter struggled with understanding, grasping the fullness of the message of Jesus. He struggled. That's why he resisted God when God said for him to go to Colinius. He told God, God forbid. Are you following me now? He saw a sheet, right? In the earlier chapter, he saw a sheet that had all kinds of animals representing the old covenant. And God told him, arise, kill and eat three times. He told God, I can't do it. And God, God now asked him, why can't you do it? He said, because he's unclean. Who, de- who determined what is clean and unclean? The person who says something is unclean or clean. He's telling you, arise, kill and eat. You are telling him, sir, it's not clean. Basically, what are you telling God? God forbid, I can't do it. I can't offend God by doing this. God now tells him, how dare you call unclean what the Lord has made clean? Problem is, Peter did not get the memo when unclean became clean. Do you understand now? He didn't get it. What was the game changer? The cross. So, so with which understanding was Peter challenging Jesus, challenging God? Pre-cross. 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 The law. It was from the standpoint of, no, now we are Jews. It was you that said, we should not eat this thing, this thing, winged animals, animals that have scales, you know. We should, you said they are unclean. It was you that said it now. So why would you turn around and be telling me to eat what you said is unclean? So he challenges God on the strength of his previous understanding. He didn't get the memo. He hadn't registered in his head. So God now said to him, why would you call unclean what God has made? Acts 10, 12. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. Next verse. And a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, Not so, Lord. Now, here self-righteousness in a man that is supposed to be depending on righteousness apart from works. Peter or Peter? For I have never eaten anything common. Why are you, Lord, about to make me break my record? I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew of Jews. I've never eaten anything unclean. Come on, Lord. Don't make me do this. A voice spoke to me a second time. What God has cleansed. What God has cleansed. Three times it happened. That was stubborn. All this was preparing him to go to a Gentile and preach the gospel. Because after this, 
that a man came to him from Cornelius. He said, now carry this treasure. Go and give it to dogs. Go and give it to unclean people. Go and give it to commoners. If he had not had this vision, he probably would have beat the person that came from Cornelius. Peter, Peter. Peter. The way he would beat the person, the guy that beat the sons of Sceva would come and learn apprenticeship from him. Beat, what, are, you, are you mad? Call me, me, Peter, Cephas. <laughs> Petra, like me. <laughs> I should go and, the rock, I should go and preach to, to commoners. Who are you? So the vision came to prepare him to let him know that God had changed the, the, the playing game. But Peter didn't get it. There was stuff that they struggled with. James, James, the brother of Jesus, the brother of Jesus, James, in Acts 15, he's still struggling with grace. This same Peter goes back to Jerusalem and tells the elders at this time, James was head of the church. And says, see what God did oh, among Gentiles. James still counted four laws. I said, when I manage this one first. <laughs> You can't be completely lawless. So do, do, do this, do this other one, do that other one. Let's know that people are trying to do something. So when you study biblical accounts in the New Testament, you must synchronize their narratives with the doctrine of the new creation reality. They were not always right. They were not always right. Come on, tell me, oh, Ananias and Sapphira, they died because they gave the Lord wrong offering. It wasn't written for you to go and practice it. That was waste of grace. Waste of power. Made somebody afraid. He had a cardiac arrest and then died. And then say, God killed him. God did not kill Ananias and Sapphira. And if you have time and we come to it today, you see how that is an illegal, illicit doctrine of demons to suggest that a believer for whom Jesus died can die for eating Holy Communion. Kai! Wafer, Wafer and Rabina will kill a believer because the believer had sin. Why did righteousness not kill the believer? Righteousness, the person, intercedes for the person. Then bread kills him. Jesus, the just, is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. If any man sins, 1 John 2, 2, we have an advocate, Jesus, the just, at the Father's hand, interceding for you. Not praying for you, I've taught you before. Interceding is not praying for you. Interceding is letting the father know, this is what I died for. Now he's holding you up. Then in his church, we can kill you because you ate wafer with sin in your heart. Because you drank ever wine unworthily. Are you here now? So not, things are written for examples, not written for you to do. So God is not feeling happy because somebody held back their own money. Now I'm not, I'm not supporting stinginess. But God is so pissed so upset that you didn't give him or his disciples money killed you kills you instantly hey come and tell me it's in the new testament my answer to you is it is in the new testament 
but it is not off the New Testament. It's not off. Do you understand that now? So the early guys struggled with stuff because it took a while for them to receive the clarity of the finished work. Does that make sense? It took a while for them to receive clarity. So a man is full of the Holy Ghost. His sins are forgiven. He's been baptized into Christ. You subject him to water. But the point is, even in that text, when they did in Acts 10, even when they got the baptism wrong, they got it wrong in the name of Jesus. You see that again, right? Not in the name of Father and Holy Spirit. Are you here now? Romans chapter 6. From verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We're dealing with church consciousness, right? Yes, sir. A.K.A. subtitled, discerning the Lord's body. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? See verse 3 now, this is what I want to show you. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, Paul mentions baptism here and mentions into Christ Jesus. Not the Trinity in the sense of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 13. This is Paul chiding or rebuking the church for divisions. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Sir, I thank God that I baptized none of you. No, in fact, go to TPT. Paul says, let me ask you. Is Christ divided? Did I die on the cross for you? 14. At your baptism, did you pledge yourself to follow Paul? 14. Thank God. He said, look at this. He said, thank God. I only baptized two from Corinth. Crispus and Gaius. Next verse. You will remember another one. So no one can say that in my name I baptized others. See verse 16. Oh, yes. I also baptized Stephanos and his family. Other than that, I don't remember. Some of you believe only in King James. So give me 17 in, in King James. And if you're not instructed, I can't help you. TPT. Not to see how many I could baptize. The message. Collect the following for myself. That's what he equates baptism with. NLT. Christ didn't send me to baptize. Hold on. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I thought you said Jesus said that. But Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. So what is Paul narrowing here by implication? Water baptism. It is sent me to, to put people in water. Who did I put in water? Oh, Christmas, Gaius. Oh, Stephanie's family. That's all. Oh. But that's not a big deal. Christ did not send me to do that. If it was integral to salvation, Paul, by whose gospel you are saved, will not have dared to say Christ did not send me to do it. Because in, in doing that, Paul basically trivializes it. In saying that, he, he, he trivializes it, he downplays it. I wasn't sent to baptize. Who did I baptize? All of you in Corinth, only three people are baptized. So were you baptizing to Paul? Do you know the interesting thing? Jesus himself never baptized anybody in water. Not once. You know why his disciples baptized? Because they were ex 
John's disciples. Remember? A bulk of them were followers of John that left him. Follow Jesus. And retained John as their mentor. Just like the ones in Luke 9, the sons, sons of thunder, that were following Jesus and retained Elijah as their mentor. Shall we call down fire from heaven to consume them just as Elijah did? So who was their ministry mentor? Who was their leader? At the, at the same time. So they were followers of Jesus, referencing Elijah and telling Jesus, who says, I am resurrection and life. I am come that they might have life. Greater love had no one than this than a man laid on his life. For God commended his love towards them in this manner that while we were wild, we were wild, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He was given up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. Romans 4.25. The same person is in front of you. And you are telling him, should we call fire to kill them? Kill people that he came to save. You were following Jesus, but he was not your mentor. You understand? You are following Jesus, but your father in the Lord is Elijah. You are following Jesus, but your mentor is John the Baptist. So when, when this guy is writing, John the Beloved is writing in John 4 and chapter 1, right to verse 3, he says in John 4, 1, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Hold up, disclaimer in the next line. So, Pharisees heard, not churches, not believers, not God. Pharisees heard, though, that it looks like this guy has more people following him and more people being baptized by him or being baptized around the concept of him. Jesus did not baptize, but his disciples. So, who sent them? All through Jesus' ministry, pre-cross, he sent out the 12, sent out the 17. Did not send, tell them to baptize anybody. Give them his name. It's when he's now dead and has paid for sin. Then he commissions water baptism. Think about the order. Do you understand? All through. He didn't tell them, when you go, please make sure. Before you do anything, as soon as you reach that crusade ground, make them swim. Find water. Don't preach because they're not ready to receive you. So baptism prepares them to repent, to receive. So baptize them. Why you are baptizing them and they're wet? Because dry people don't receive the gospel. So even if Matthew 28, 19 is verified as being part of scripture originally, we have seen from a plethora of scriptures that baptism, as we saw last Sunday, which is into Jesus, into the spirit, by the spirit, into the church, is in the name of Jesus. Because God, who is Father, who begot the Son, who has the Holy Spirit, gave him the name. God didn't give Jesus God's name. The Father did not give Jesus the Father's name. The Father carved a name out of his divinity that captures everything he, the Father, is. Carried that onoma and gave to Jesus. Do you understand? That's what it means for the fullness of the Godhead body to be in Jesus. That's what it means when Peter says, God made this Jesus, Lord, this Jesus, King. At what point? Resurrection. So the name Jesus came into is a name that did not exist. It's, it's not in name of God that goes, okay, now you can bear my name. 
God gave him the name. The name. That name is not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the name. So no other access in the kingdom is given other than the name. It says neither is there salvation in any other. The name of Jesus. It's not a tripartite name, a name that has a father dimension. It is the name. So even if Matthew wrote that and we, we confirm that it wasn't the scribes that added it, Matthew did not hear it. And we can say that on the authority of the rest of scripture. When there's an unclear scripture, it is interpreted by the scriptures that are clear. So on the strength of the rest of the scriptures, we can submit that first of all, that text is in doubt. But just so that I don't want to be lazy and go, oh, don't worry about Matthew 19. It's not in scripture. You know, most manuscripts don't have it. That can be an excuse for laziness and not wanting to explain what is hard. So no, me, I tested it. Do you understand? I tested it. And let's explain it. That even if it is right, Matthew is wrong. If it's right. Because it's the name that God gave him. Maybe Matthew heard something else. Maybe the person that now transcribed it knows what he transcribed. But all through the rest of the scriptures, when we consider the doctrine of baptism, we see that it's the name of Jesus. All through the name of Jesus. Does that explain this now? Yes! One more scripture to deal with. Mark says this is thing. He who believes and is baptized. Hey, hey, day. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Doesn't it sound like wahala to you? So now salvation appears by inference to be a function of faith and works. Believing alone appears to not be enough. That's a problem. Let's start there. And sir, it, it is impossible to include even the distant cousin of works in salvation. Works doesn't even have to show up. Just, just be from the same skin color. Jonathan, you're, you're from the same distant continent as works. It invalidates by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you believe, you're saved. Not if you believe and you are baptized. So, what are you saying, Jesus? Are you saying water baptism? Uh, sir. sir. Sir Jesus. You see, you see Jesus, we, you know, we, we have Genesis to Revelation. And, and sir, with all due respect, we have the mind of Christ. It's because we have the spirit of Christ. Sir Jesus, you cannot be saying that. No, but I'm, I'm saying to you, sir. Because we have your spirit. And we know your mind, the full counsel of your will. Sir, sir, we know that there are some things you cannot be saying. Sir, sir, we know you enough. We have epignosis of you by the mind of the Father that his spirit gives us. Sir, you see this thing? You cannot be saying it. That's what happens when you come into understanding of the mind of God. God cannot, he cannot, he cannot, cannot. It's inconceivable that Jesus will stand and say, 
you will add faith and John the Baptist to be saved. And when we now come to John's own account in John 5, 6, where they now come to him in chapter 6 and say, what shall we do that we may walk the works of him? And Jesus now replies and says to them, this is the work of the Father that you believe on. Why at that point did you... No, we're talking to Jesus. We're talking to Jesus. Sir, sir, you said let's reason together, B. We're reasoning. Why at that point did you not say this is the work of the Father that you believe and be baptized? So, so it's either you are deceiving us or you are confused. But if you are confused, sir, then I should be confused because it's your spirit that confused me. But, but I'm not confused. So there's a problem, sir, based on logistics, sir. Because, because sir, it's not, sir, it's not, I mean, I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful or anything. You know, you know I, I know you're Lord and, and all, you know. You died for me and everything. And you, you, you sent your, oh, that's you. You came to die for me and everything. And it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm trying to know more than you. But now we both know the same thing. We have the same mind, the same spirit, the same father. The same for baptism, the same, we know the same thing. The only difference is that your own is not immortality. My own is still waiting. Because the moment we see him, we become like him. Like, okay. Joint heirs with the son. So, so, so now that we have established, elder brother, sir, that you cannot be saying it is faith and water baptism. Because if it's water that is required for salvation, then John was the savior. Why then did you bother to come? All this drama, all this drama for what? Messed up Mary, messed up Joseph, just too much drama. For what? Just leave us with John. So that cannot be what that scripture says. Against the rest of scripture. So I'm not afraid to engage with it just because it managed to make its way into the Bible. We can still deal with it on the strength of scripture. Even if somebody sat down and added it from the back door, there's enough scripture, enough light to bring clarity in every gray area. So now you put it here. You thought you were putting it to champion your agenda. Okay, let me now help you and say that since baptism, as we have established last week, is by the medium of the Spirit into Christ Jesus. Okay, you, you, you said Mark, you said Jesus said, Abi. You said Jesus said Mark 16, 16. You have to be, believe and be baptized to be saved. And now we know that, sir, you know, baptism is by the, the baptism you said you came to do is using the spirit. So if your own baptismal medium is the spirit, then we can submit that what you meant is that except you believe, which is to say receiving the spirit, then you cannot be saved. Because the witness of salvation is the Holy Spirit. He is the medium by which Jesus the Baptist baptizes. He's the seal of our salvation for the day of redemption. So sir, on the strength of the rest of scripture, we believe and therefore declare to you sir, that what you are saying is that you have to believe, which is to say receive the promise of the Holy Spirit to be saved. You cannot be saved Apart from the agency of the spirit. Sir, that's what you're saying. I rest my case. 
has to be the only thing. You are saying. Because that is the consistency of scripture. That's the place of the Holy Spirit. That's why nobody was saved until Jesus resurrected. Including all his disciples. So you see the problem Peter had. The problem Peter had was that by Acts 2, by the first few weeks, months, years of the early church, Peter, apostle, was a new convert. The people that Paul says should not even teach in church. Because they are novices. Unskilled in the word of righteousness. And very sadly, at that point, lacking the writings of Paul until you convert. Are you, are you here? So, when he's there, mixing things up, one and two, one and two, one and two, you understand? At one point, it's Peter talking. Even in his letters, you can see his growth. It's the same Peter that Anastas talks about the sufferings of Jesus and the glories that will follow. You're like, okay, you are getting it now. So by the time you're going, what forbids these people? What forbids water? So you, you, you are growing. And that should encourage you, believer, that at whatever level you are in your faith journey, the Lord is ready and willing to use you. Apollos was there in the town square, screaming, screaming what he knew of the gospel. Until Priscilla and Aquila met him and began to fill in the blanks of what he didn't know. They didn't shut him down for overzealousness. At whatever level, the Lord can use you. Any level. Are you here? Put Mark 16, 16 back up. He who believes, which is to say baptized, which is to say being submerged and wholly overwhelmed. Remember, baptizo. And how do we know the medium here? It's one baptism, Ephesians 4 says. If, what, if Jesus is talking, then he cannot be referring to John's baptism. He has to be referring to Jesus' baptism. And the medium for that baptism is the Holy Spirit. Amen? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. 14 through to 16. So this is Peter speaking. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without sport and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, 16, as also in all his epistles. By now, Peter had studied them all. Speaking in them of these things, in which are some hard things to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destructions as they do the rest of the scripture. So by this time, Peter was admitting that Paul's letters were scriptures. As they do the rest of the scriptures. Brother Paul wrote something. Give us, give us an TPT. Give us verse um, 16 in the TPT. He consistently speaks of these things in all of his letters, even though he writes some concepts that are overwhelming to our understanding. Not excluding himself. Write some, Paul writes some tough things. Paul was not around in the physical ministry of Jesus. According to Bible history, he was at best a boy. At best. So Peter was many times over old enough to be his father. It is by the time of the early church, by the time of the first deacons and Stephen, that Paul uh, is growing into a young man. In his early 20s. Killing people on behalf of God. For blasphemy. So the, the timeline doesn't put him in the physical ministry of Jesus. Are you here now? 
This same Peter, you see what Paul does to straighten his faulty theology in Galatians chapter 2. In very strong words, very strong words, Paul takes on his father's age mate. Paul takes on somebody who was with Jesus for misrepresenting Jesus. You, can you appreciate the audacity? You were with Jesus. I was not. And you now get up and do something. I attack you and say, that is not Jesus. But it's you that was physically with Jesus. And Paul tells Peter, sir, you are wrong. He, somebody I saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, koro koro with my eye. Paul said, you are wrong. Galatians 2, 11. Now Paul is writing to the Galatian churches and he tells them, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Hey, tippity please. When Peter visited Antioch, he, look at this, he began to mislead the believers and cause them to stumble over his behavior. So I had to confront him to his face over what he was doing. So before you get up and copy Peter, take a break. And look at what you're about to copy in the light of the consistency of the message of the New Testament. Go on. See verse 12. He enjoyed being with non-Jewish believers who didn't keep the Jewish customs, eating his meals with them. Up until the time the Jewish friends of the principality called James arrived from Jerusalem. When he saw them, he withdrew from his non-Jewish friends and separated himself from them acting like an orthodox Jew or a practicing Jew. That's what it means. Fearing how it will look to them if he ate with the non-Jewish believers. Remember that the middle wall had been broken? Remember he had made one man out of the two? So see verse 13. How it will look to them and so because of Peter's what? Many other Jewish believers followed suit, refusing to eat with non-Jewish Believers, even Barnabas was led astray by their poor example and condoned this legalistic, hypocritical behavior. So Paul rebuked him. See verse fourteen. is is very is very dangerous. See what Paul says to Peter. When I realized that they were acting inconsistently with the revelation of grace, who was acting contrary to grace, Peter. Acting contrary to grace, I had to confront him in front of everyone, not privately. Then he says to Peter, you were born a Jew, and yet you've chosen to disregard Jewish regulations and live like a Gentile. Why then do you force those who are not Jews to conform to the regulations of Judaism? See how New King James puts it. It's also strong. Verse 14. Paul says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, so you have to harmonize the message of the scriptures to get the full gospel. Are you here now? Yes. Having said that, I'll still throw out that shortening of Mark. Has anybody seen anything in your Bible? Any footnotes? That you had never noticed before? Where does your Bible stop in Mark 16? So let's, let's hear what your footnote has to say. Mine says, later manuscripts add verses 9 to 20. Later manuscripts add verses 9 to 20. Later. Older manuscripts of Mark 16 end at verse 8. Yes, read your own. 
The external mm. evidence. The external evidence strongly suggests strongly suggests that these verses were not originally part of Mark's gospel. So it puts Mark 16, 9 to 20. While the authority of Greek manuscripts contain these verses, the earliest and most reliable do not. A shorter ending also existed, but it is not included in the text. Further, some that include the passage notes that it was missing from older Greek manuscripts, while others have scribal marks indicating the passage was considered spurious. Spurious, uh, dodgy. The 4th century church fathers, Isubios and Jer- Jeroboam, noted that although all Greek manuscripts available to them lacked verse 9 to 20, the internal evidence from this passage also weighs heavily against Mark's authorship. The transition between verse 8 and 9 is abrupt and awkward. The Greek particular translated now that begins verse 9 implies continuity with the preceding narrative. What follows, however, does not continue the story of the women referred to in verse 8, but describes Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. The masculine participle in verse 9 expects he as its antecedent, yet the subject of verse 8 is the women. Although she had just been mentioned three times in verse 15, Verse 9 introduces Mary Magdalene as if for the first time. Further, if Mark wrote verse 9, it is strange that he would, he would only now note that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. The angel spoke of Jesus appearing to his followers in Galilee, yet the appearance described in verse 9 to 20 are all in the Jerusalem area. Finally, the presence of these verses of a significant number of Greek words used nowhere else in Mark, argues that Mark did not write them. Basically, the literary writing style of Mark dies in verse 8 and changes in verse 9. Basically. Besides the fact that there's no correlate. Even if there were no correlate, if the writing style were similar, then you can say, well, he, he just killed a thought because he was in a hurry or running out of scroll and then introduces another thought very quickly. But even that is missing. Okay, um, you're in class, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. says, some manuscript and ancient translation do not have this ending to the gospel verses 9 to 20. Mm-hmm. And goes on to say, some manuscript and ancient translation have this shorter ending to the gospel in addition to the longer ending 9 to 20. Right. Mika's Bible mentions the other alternate shorter ending, but doesn't give it to you. Let me give it to you. The one that is in all the manuscripts that was omitted. So at the end of verse 8, it goes into, they reported briefly, this is the woman from verse 8. At the end of that, the benediction of this chapter is, they reported briefly to those around Peter all that they had been commanded After these things, Jesus himself sent out through them from the east to the west the holy and imperishable preaching of eternal salvation. Amen. I I can accept that. 
They reported these things. Were commissioned to go and preach holy and imperishable preaching of eternal salvation. Some people say, "No, just remove, please remove, remove, remove that one there first. It's, it makes eternal salvation too clear. It makes eternal security too clear. So let only the discerning search it out. I hope you will appreciate that I didn't come and stand in front of you and just kill 16 from verse 9 to the end. I left it there, assumed it was there, and dealt with it according to scripture. This is how you know. In the inerrancy of scripture and the sufficiency of scripture, that no matter what anybody thinks they have twisted, everything God intended for us to know for all times in all ages are contained and interpreted in the scriptures. That was what that exercise was about. There's too much that is clear to be thrown off by what is unclear. There's too much that is clear to be thrown off and confused. In other words, there's no part of the Bible that can make you an unbeliever. No part. Somebody might just be lazy enough to not interpret it properly. Somebody could have even been malicious enough to sneak in something that was not there or take out something that was there. But there's nothing in scripture that can take away from your believing. So now you have a holistic grasp on baptism and the name of Jesus versus the application of the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you might wonder, why why don't you say that? Now you know why. I'm sticking with the scriptures that are clear. Why don't you say I commissioned this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? I'm sticking with what is clear. One obscure, debated portion of scripture cannot be what I found doctrine on. I refuse. I may be alone, but I refuse. I refuse to build a practice out of one thing that cannot be corroborated explicitly in the rest of scriptures that are clear enough to explain that. The name of Jesus is enough. The name of Jesus is enough. It is his spirit that is in me crying Abba. Amen. So when we are saying baptism into Christ Jesus and his body, you can understand. Christ Jesus is a full, complete entity. Christ Jesus is a full and complete entity. He's a head with a body. A head without a body cannot be a living thing. Christ Jesus is a complete entity, a head with a body. Next line. Today, the body of Christ Jesus is not physical. Post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, Jesus does not have a tangible physical body. That's the body that he shed off and took immortality. That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? When Jesus was in the earth before the cross, it didn't happen, but if he had showed up in a room that was locked, it would have had to be regarded as a miracle because he had a tangible body. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the normal Jesus trying to enter the wall, the way he would hit his head against the wall. He will hit his head and shout, Jesus. 
So if in his lifetime, he showed up in a place, it's not normal. So abnormal it was that they saw him on water and said he's a ghost. Because they know that this Jesus that has been with us, that we just, just together now we fed people bread and fish. Do you understand? It's a, it's a person. Do you understand? It's not a spirit, it's a, it's a person. So how come a person is walking on water and is not sinking? Peter said, me, me too, I want to try it. Right? Human. At the time he resurrects, he has holes in his sides and there's no blood flowing. They're in a locked room and he's just showing up and disappearing and appearing at will. You know, the first time he appeared, Thomas was not there. Yeah. It wasn't one, so. Thomas came back and he said, Jesus came. He said, ah, please. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Do what? <laughs> oh, please. Appeared. Where? Here. How? Why did he choose when I was not around? So come, how convenient. And then the next time they gathered, and the Bible says, and Judah, Thomas was present. And Jesus came among them. Among them. Not came into the room. One minute somebody is with these two disciples on the way to Emmaus. As they began to discern him physically, he was gone. So I've said over and over, the Christ that rose is not the Jesus that died. It's not. That's why he's called the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. That's why I asked you, are you born again? You say you are born again. Wait until I teach you. You say you, say, you, say you are born again. <laughs> you, like this, born again. Teaser, until I teach it. Teaser, teaser. Was Jesus called firstborn because he was born or because he rose? When, when was he called son of God? When he gave his life to Christ, when was he told today, I have begotten you? When he was born or when he resurrected? So he was born and then he was born again. And his being born again was not a function of repenting and receiving remission of sins. So when he stands and tells Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and spirit, he was referring to two births. Natural birth where your water breaks. My water broke. That's his natural birth. Not baptism. I've dealt with that already. Except a man be born. That's why Nicodemus understood it. That's why he said, can I now go inside and be born again? So, now you're, so now, now you're telling me I have to go into my mother's womb and be born. He understood what Jesus meant. The church didn't. It was clear enough for Nicodemus to understand. Are you telling me I should go back to my mother's womb and be born again? Because you be born of water. Natural birth. Water broke. You came on. That's first birth. So then you must be born of spirit. And when you are born of spirit, then you can hear what Jesus uses. The word he uses. Enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom that is coming. That kingdom. That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. If, if Jesus was talking to Nico about salvation from sin, why did Nico not confess at the end of John 3? So you're born again and you're still here. See, see, born again is not when spirit enters you. Born again is when you become spirit. 
Again, the church missed it. We mixed baptism of the spirit with being born again. Born again is immortality. When you become spirit. That's the only time that Jesus has that conversation, born again. And he talks about entering the kingdom, not forgiveness of sins. Seeing the kingdom, entering the kingdom. There's so much we need to turn around. We take a lot of humility on the part of the body of Christ and her leaders to sit down and just look at what has been looking at you all along. It's, not, it's nothing new. I'm not, I'm not saying anything. There's nothing new to what was said. Nothing, nothing, nothing new. Nothing new is there. It's not, it's nothing. It's not a book. It's nothing. It's right new. Scriptures. That's in front of you. Let's try and continue. So, post-resurrection Jesus, no physical body. The completion of my salvation is when post-resurrection path will take that other body and drop this one. Paul writes about it as corruption taking on incorruption. Mortality taking on immortality. This is why Jesus now says in Matthew that there will be no marriage at the resurrection. There's no body to use and do intimacy. No physical body. To say, oh, your body is not yours. It's your husband's. Your body is not your husband. There'll be nobody. There'll be no physical body. It all ends here. Why did I say all this? When you hear the body of Christ, don't think a physical body. He has none. Jesus had a physical body. Christ, the resurrected one, the exalted one, the glorified one, has no physical body. Now that we have established he has no physical body, when we say in the New Testament, the body of Christ, what do we mean? Because I've said, don't think physical body. Don't think human anatomy. Two hands, two nostrils, two ears, two eyes, a mouth, legs, body parts, organs. No. That implication, that appellation as regarding Jesus ended when he resurrected. Does that make sense? It is the glorified Jesus that took on a bodily form just for witness sake. Witness sake. So that men will not say they did not see him. Does that make sense? So that men will not, and that's not the first time. Even in the old covenant, in the old, in the old testament, rather, you see where angels take on human form. Yeah, the pre-incarnate son of God showed up in Abraham's tent, sat down, ate with him. Does that make sense? Spirit taking on a bodily form. And he did that post-resurrection for witness. So people can see him. Not because he needed it. Does that make sense now? And that's why I say to you guys over and over, we're expecting to see three thrones at the resurrection. You'll be disappointed. You'll be very disappointed. Because these guys without a physical body. So when I say things like the ministry of the Holy Spirit and even new creation people, sir, have not gotten this thing right. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not eternal. I've said it over and over. It's not, it's not forever. It's to guarantee you until you get to the Father, become like Jesus. You will look for the Holy Spirit. You won't see him. Listen to me. It's not blasphemy. Because you have become him. You have become him. It's not forever. Are you here now? Yes, sir. 
If you're new in church, you don't understand some things, just receive what you are receiving and put it in the bank. I didn't just wake up and start teaching this. So if you don't understand it, just, just take it. Believe it, put it in the bank. Clarity will meet clarity. The body of Christ is not physical body part. If it isn't, then what is it? If the believer is baptized into Christ, we established this last week and yes, finished it today. If the believer is baptized into Christ, the believer is baptized into his body. His body. Ephesians 2.19. His body. Not legs, arms, not physical. Because that no longer exists. Are you here? Yes, Ephesians 2.19. Begin to see for yourself what his body now, post-resurrection New Testament means. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 4 and 4. Ephesians 4 and 4. There is one body. There is one and that body is not the physical body of Jesus. It's important for where we're going with this teaching. I told you last week the word body is from the Greek word soma. S-O-M-A. Soma. And it refers to the body as a sound hole. A sound hole. So by implication of the word soma, if part of my body or some part of me is sick, it is no longer a body. So soma, body, is not different body parts. That's not body. Soma is different body parts working well together. Does that make sense? So in the meaning of soma, the moment my hand dies, I am not a body without a hand. No, if my hand dies, I cease to be a body. Are you following me now? That's the meaning of a sound hole, soma. When Paul says the body is referring to the different parts all working together properly. So the moment a finger loses a nail, it's not a, it's not a body that is sick. A body that is sick is no longer a body. Are you here about the body house? A body that has headache and so I can't hear in the right ear anymore is no longer a body. There is no such thing as a sick body. Scripturally. Not anatomically. Biologically, you know, you can be sick. You can wake up sometimes. One eye wakes up, the other eye takes two hours later to wake up. It happens. You have woken up, but your eyes have not opened. You wake up, you put your feet on the ground, and you realize one leg has not woken up. You don't need to pump blood into it. <laughs> who, who knows what I'm talking about? Yeah, you, you need to pump. It's numb. You need to, to pump blood into it to keep going. But so mind, the scriptural use of that word is a complete sound hole working together. Pay attention to that because we're discussing church consciousness. Discerning the Lord's body. Discerning the Lord's body. And I've told you the Lord's body now, the body of Christ now, is not his physical body. He has none. One therefore, 
cannot love and honor Christ and despise his body. You cannot honor and love Christ and despise his body. What is his body? The church. So in New Testament applications of the word body, think the church. Do you understand that now? It does not refer post-resurrection to a physical body because such a physical body of Jesus Christ does not exist. But he has a body. Otherwise, he cannot be head. If he's head, he has a body. And he's head of his body, the church. So when you think or you hear the word body, think the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we said earlier, you cannot be saved and not planted in the church. You cannot come to the head and not meet his body. You can't come to the head and not meet his body. No one comes to just Jesus Christ. No one comes to just Jesus Christ. Do you remember Hebrews 12? You have come to Jesus Christ. He didn't stop there. To the general assembly of the firstborn. Whose names? This is where Bible scholars have allowed esoteric truth to twist their head. Feel like you can be, you can be believer alone. It's, it's a lie. No one person is there an assembly. Who are you assembling with? I am the church. What nonsense. No single individual can be the church. It's basic Bible knowledge. Basic. People use this all these dogmas and philosophies to justify their pain and anger about what one part of the church did to them at one point or the other. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. One church, one denomination, one pastor, you know, hurt you, disappointed you, said, oh no, I'm the church, I can be church in my house. You now write your own scriptures to suit your pain. You rewrite scripture, choose what part of God's word or write what part of God's word endorses what you're going through. Say, I'm the church, I have the Holy Spirit and I ask, ask you, show me where. And you can't show me. Because it does not exist. That's why some people don't like argue with us. So I won't stand and tell you something. I say, show, show me. I'm open to it. And what you're showing me, make sure that you can properly divide it. Throw scriptures at me that you can't exegete. Even you cannot explain what you're telling me. Your own point you want to use against me. You don't know it. I'm not talking my point. Your own scripture that you want to use to fight. No single individual is saved and comes to just Christ. I'm a believer. I am the temple of God. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't say that. Go and read it. I showed you in this house. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It says, do ye, do ye, the article in the Greek is all of you. Do ye not know that your bodies are the temple, not temples? That's what Paul says in the Corinthian church. Your bodies are the temple. That's the model of church. In the context of community, that it is together that we are the church. Of course, I, God dwells in, by virtue of his spirit, dwells in every one of us. One person is not the church. What are you assembling with? No one just comes to Christ. You come into Christ and his people. Did you hear that? To come into Christ is to come into his people. To come into Christ is to come into his body. It's not something you have a say in the matter. It's not something you get to vote on. I've come to Christ Jesus, but I don't care for the general assembly of the firstborn. I don't need that. You don't get to vote on it. No believer, therefore, should desire to live alone. No believer. Hence the whole personal savior, personal savior. It's not about personal savior. No believer. Only rebels like living alone. 
rebellious people walk alone. Have you checked? Check through life. Loners are mostly rebels. No team player, no community person. No, enjoys living alone. When I say living alone, I don't mean living in your one room alone. Duh. We're talking about living in the broad sense. It's rebels that roll by themselves. Psalm 68 verse 6. Psalm 68 6. Look at this. God sets the solitary in families. He saves you. You were by yourself. He puts you in families. God, by whom all the families of the earth are named. He sets the solitary in families and he brings out those who are bound into prosperity. See that next line. But the rebellious. Because God's desire is to set the solitary in families. That's God's desire. So when you're saved, I said to you last week, honestly rethink your salvation if you have gotten used to being by yourself without the church. Oh, I like to roll by myself. I don't like people up in my space. None of us do. Oh, you think you're the only one that likes your space? You're very selfish. The rest of us just like being busy. Just like people around us. Like sharing everything. Like, you know, because we, we are inferior to you. You're the only one that has sense. After a while, everybody figures you out. And starts avoiding you. Then you start to feel lonely. You have always been alone. Yes, sir. When you started feeling lonely, is when the rest of us got tired of trying. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I decided to leave you. Oh, I'm alone. Nobody's there for me. Because you have never been there for anybody to be there for you. It's us that keep trying to love you. Keep trying to care for you. Keep trying to attend to you. Keep trying to connect with you. After a while, we said we're tired. And then leave you and I say, oh, I'm alone. You never engage as part of the house. I said last week, I repeated again today, that as I'm teaching, there's a lot of repenting that all of us have to do. And it's in your favor to not allow the enemy use your emotions. To block your repentance. Don't do it. He sets the solitary in families. So I'm alone. Have you engaged? I don't know anybody I keep to myself. Who should chase after you? I didn't come. Nobody called me to check up on me. Do you know how to what length you should go to not have to say I didn't come? We have to know you as the kind of person that never says, I didn't come. And if you are the kind of person that hardly ever says, I didn't come, because you hardly are absent, you are not the kind of person that will complain if when you didn't come, we didn't call. Because at that point, you already have the level of maturity to not be found in such stupidity. You're not be found there. If you are at the level of Immaturity that goes, ah, they didn't call me. They nobody checked up me when I didn't come. You are not the kind that takes coming seriously. Yes, you're not the kind. Yes, if you're the kind that takes gathering with the church seriously, you would not be found in a place where you say, I didn't come because I didn't have transport. I was not feeling yes, well. See, you would tell your neighbors, see, drag me. Just, just take me to church. If you guys can just drag me and get me to church, I'll be fine. Your neighbors will know that even if you can't talk, if anything, they should just carry you and take you to your tribe and you'll be fine. Everybody around you should know that you don't trivialize the gathering together of the saints. You not even give yourself opportunity to say, I didn't come, I don't call me. Is it a social gathering? 
No, you are saved into the body. Because he sets the solitary in families. So you know your family. You should know your family. He sets the solitary in families. Not split the families into isolation. I don't have to like the look on your face. Or be comfortable with how you dress. We're in the same family. That's how God wills it. So it is. Because together are we his body. And the body is not one part. Remember from last week? Many parts. One body. It's foolish to think right now. As I am right now, all you can see of me is my nicely shining head, my face, my hands, and some parts of my feet when my hands ride up. The parts of me you can see are not all there are to my body. There's some parts of my body that I never have seen the sunlight. And yet, as Paul says, they are vital elements of my body. Are you here now? It would be therefore foolish to say that all there is to my body is my face. <laughs> or when you're having a bath, you only wash the parts of you that you know that cloth will cover. You do that. You, you don't do that. You are sure. Why then are we like that with the Lord's body? There are people that are loud in the Lord's body. There are others that are not so loud. They are all equal parts of the Lord's body. Some are all over the place and strong and energetic and busy. Others are behind the scenes. Equal parts. And before you open your mouth and say, that's me. If you designed and designated yourself a position, you are evil. It's not you that should enter church and say, oh yeah, me, I'm the quiet one. I'm the one that doesn't do much. No, it is, a, it is allocated to you by the ministry of the Spirit under the leadership of your leaders. Don't be in a hurry to say, yeah, 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 that's me. I'm the one that doesn't like attention. If you don't like attention and responsibility calls you into a place of attention, grace is released unto you to handle attention instantly. If you don't like people, and by leading of the Spirit of God, we appoint you as a head to care for people at the point of appointment by the church. Grace is released to you to function in that office. You know why you mess up? Because you reduce it to your psychological temperament. You define yourself according to how psychologists define you. Sanguine, psychedelic, melancholic, phlegmatic, choleric. So you accept the perception of psychologists. And you say, no, I'm the, the kind of person I am. I don't like people. So you we think we're in this because we like people? You think Jesus died because he liked you? He didn't die for you because he was a fan of yours. Oh, look at them, so cute. Oh, sheep without shepherd. Oh. Oh. So lovely. They look so sweet. They make me want to die. How can you see these cute faces and live? No. You have to die. No. We're not in this because we like people. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Because we understand his body. Everything Jesus says, he says to his body. Everything Jesus says, he says to his body. Acts 1 and 3. To whom he also presented himself alive. This is talking of Jesus. After his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus did not appear 
to Mary Magdalene alone. He appeared to them, being seen by them, and then speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom. Not an individual. See verse 8. He says, but you shall receive power. You there, in the, in the, in the original language, refer to ye, just like I said earlier. You all will receive power. When it comes upon you all, and you all will be my witness. I said to you last week that even the things that he said to individuals, he said in the hearing of many. That's why they could record what he said. Somebody was there. Somebody was within earshot. Somebody collated eyewitness accounts like Luke says. I showed you in Luke 1, I think verse 3. Yeah, he says, I, I've collected an orderly account of eyewitness accounts. And so I feel like it's proper for me to also write my own version to you. Right? An orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Now you may know the certainty of things which you were instructed. See verse 2. Verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. This is Luke speaking. So his account was a collection of verified eyewitness accounts. So even when Jesus spoke alone, people were there. Make sense? Even when he spoke to an individual, somebody was there to hear. Jesus said nothing in isolation. Jesus said nothing in isolation. See Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through to 12. Hebrews 2, 10 through to 12, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. 11. For both he who sanctifies, that is God, Christ rather, and those of us who are being sanctified, that is us, are all of one. That's God. We're all together. For which reason he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren, that's us, saying, now here's Christ saying in verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren. Christ is saying, I will declare your name, God, to my brethren, the church. In the midst of the ecclesia, that's the word, assembly. That's the word, ecclesia. In the midst of the ecclesia, I will sing praise to you. Who is singing praise, Bob? Where is he singing it? Who can hear him? How is he singing it? By the agency of you're learning well. So when we sing in our gathering, who is singing? You don't tell me eh, singing is not no 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 singing is important for doctrine. It's important. It's a medium through which Christ sounds the divinity of God for us to hear. That's why when we sing, we sing with all our energy. Because when you're singing, what, whose mind is being declared? The mind of Christ. Just borrowing your voice. But the point is, Jesus is declaring God's name in our midst and all of us can hear. <laughs> He's not in one corner, kneeling down quietly, here on his personal God and Savior. Isn't it interesting that it is not at the right hand of the Father that Jesus worships? It's in the church. It's in the church. For manifesting the fullness of himself in Christ Jesus among believers in every place. I'll take it again. The church 
is God's framework for manifesting the fullness of himself in Christ Jesus. The fullness of God in Christ Jesus, right? Among believers in every place. The church is God's framework for manifesting the fullness of himself in Christ Jesus among believers in every place. The church is God's framework for manifesting the fullness of himself in Christ Jesus among believers in every place. The fullness of God himself among believers in every place. So if believers will encounter God, the vehicle and the platform for them to encounter God is the church. Do you understand that now? The church. It's God's framework for manifesting himself in full. God is not afraid that some people can't take it. Because we are all believers. Baptized into Christ. Do you get it now? We're baptized into Christ. So God doesn't hold himself back in the church. The fullness of God in Christ Jesus is manifested among believers in the church. It's God's powerhouse. God's power. Remember Ephesians 3.10? To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Oh my God. To principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. The church makes known the manifold wisdom of God, even to principalities and powers. That means, I submit, if a principality and power around here is misbehaving, it's because the church did not teach them. You can't come, come here, me, me, come around and say, I want to sleep at night. I now start praying. Before I sleep, every witch and wizard. No, they know, they know, they know, they know my house. So I blind their eyes. It's not a Christian prayer. It's not in scripture. It's not in scripture. It's not in scripture. That's a prayer of timidity and fear. May they not see me. No, they see me. They know me. If the witches are not troubling me, it's because they know that if you come to my area, something will happen to you. Not because they have not seen me. No, no, think about it for a second. Think about it soberly. Soberly. It's the place of the church to inform them their boundary. It's God's framework for manifesting the fullness of himself. Are you here? That's why Hebrews 10 says you have come. Tell your neighbor you have come. Not you will come. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the writer of Hebrews then says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Forsaking or not forsaking, King James says forsaking not, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, as some people have gotten used to doing. So there has never been anything normal about missing church. Never been anything normal. There's never been a time when it was cool to miss church. It's just it's cool, you know. I, I ain't going to do church tomorrow. I had a lot of church. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, I mean, I am the church. I don't, I, don't, I don't need to gather with nobody. The writer of Hebrews says, the manner of some. I wasn't saying it as a compliment. How does the TPT put it? 25. 1025. Look at this. This is not the time to neglect meeting together. As some have formed the habit 
of doing. Look at this. In fact, we should even come together more frequently, eager to encourage and urge on the own word as we anticipate that day. Oh, if you are in church too much, you're in church. See, what we gather to do in church can only be done in church. We didn't come to church to do business. We'll do business. But when we come as church, in church, what we come to do can only be done here when we gather. So don't confuse it. Oh, you're spending so much time in church. Yeah, choose your time. Tell your friend, tell your neighbor, tell your cosmate. Choose your, when you're watching Nollywood and watching Z-Wall, for, do I come and tell you you're watching too much Z-Wall? No. So why is it that your, my own is interesting you because it's church? Listen, you must be careful to not allow the voices of the world shift your conviction in the faith. When they're, when they're playing football, do you go and judge them? You not come and say to me, why do you go to church too much? Why are you alive too much? So, me going to church is a vice. Choose your vice and face your front. Put that scripture back again in the TPT. Hebrews 10.25. This is not the time to pull it away and neglect meeting together. Tell your neighbor, this is not the time. And why did you do that? Quickly. When you are going through pain, it's not the time. When you lost a loved one, it's not the time. When you just gave birth, it's not the time. There's some things I don't understand. You can back your baby and go to the market. Back your baby, go to the doctor. Back your baby, go to the shop. Back your baby, go to your friend's house. Back your baby, go to work. But you, you and your baby cannot come to church. It makes absolutely no sense. Because you can't tell me it's for the health of the baby. Then keep the baby at home. Take the baby nowhere. Don't you enter taxi with the baby. You go to the market with the baby. You, all your friends that come to your house carry the baby, pass the baby around. Just, it's not time to go to church. You're on holiday from church because you're born picky. Because you marry or about to marry. Do not neglect. This is not the time. No matter what you're going through. The church is not something you can substitute at will. When you like, you serve. When you like, you come. When you like, you follow. When you like, you obey. When you like, you give. What if he says, when he likes, you are saved? When you hurt him and doesn't like, you are no longer saved. Until you are back in favor with him. This is not the time. Tell anybody it's not the time. You see why I say we have a lot of repenting to do? That's when you should come. Because men... The amount of power that is available when the body of Christ gathers. Your sickness is not big enough. The problem is, I'm going ahead of myself now. You have not discerned. For this reason, some are sick and some sleep. I'm going ahead of myself. You have not discerned the Lord's body. You have not discerned how much power is available when the church gathers. You don't have to see it. Know it. We gather and you're, you're heartbroken. And we gather together. Energy fills on your inside. If you must cry, cry and receive light. And as you leave, you left without your burden. Because we took it. We, we, we took it. That's the power in his body.
It's not the time to neglect and pull away. As some of you have begun to do. I'm trying to finish that scripture so I can move on. Put it up. As some have formed the habit of doing. In fact, we should come together even more frequently. Eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day dawning. Don't trivialize church gatherings. We should, everything should be for us an excuse to gather. It should be a thing of joy and pride. I gathered with my tribe. I gathered with my clan. So where are you coming from? Ah, town's meeting. Oh. <laughs> Our village meeting. With who? I, I, yes. Oh, you don't know my village people? Find ways to gather more frequently that we can edify and strengthen one another. I said to you last week, your posture when you're coming for a church meeting is important. Oh, let, 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 let it not be said that I did not go. Then you're not there, you're not struggling to be blessed. You compromised your posture already. You didn't want to come. Is anybody receiving instruction? The word gathering in that scripture is the word episuanago in the, in the Greek. Episunago. E-P-I-S-U. E-P-I-S-U. And then nagog like synagogue. Episunagoge or gogwe. And it simply means a grouping together that fulfills the specific purpose of the gathering together. <laughs> a grouping together that fulfills the specific purpose of the gathering together. Not just gathering, but gathering with a specific agenda that is fulfilled when we gather. So if you came and we came for edification of the saints, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done for edification. And we came and finished and you were not edified, you didn't come. And because you didn't come, we were not exactly a gathering. See, this is why the church is so defunct. This is why the church is dysfunctional. Because we are just coming. We are not gathering. So there's no soma. There's no soma. Strife is terrible. We are not a body. If two people are against each other. Schema in the Greek. It means to rend a garment. To take a dress. To cut somebody's dress and tear it. That's what's rendered divisions in the New Testament. When you strife and you set people against each other, what have you done? You carried the church, took her garment and ripped it. Breaking a body that he broke his to put together. Strife is terrible. So Paul always says, put away strife, put away malice, put away bitterness. Because these things compromise the soma. We are not a body if people are against each other. And once we're not a body, we compromise that power that should manifest for the benefit of the believers in the church. That's why the church of Jesus Christ universal has lost power. Another word used, I'm going ahead of myself. Another word used for, for divisions is dissensions in English. And that's from the word hair, hair, heresies, hair, H-A-I-R-E-S-I-S, heresies. And that is the word from which you get the translation, heresy. So division or dissension is used in the same context as heresy. And what does heresies mean? When it says dissension or division, it means having an opinion. Having an opinion is heresies. Heresy. So divisions always come when somebody has an opinion. I, I don't think, I think, you know, the way I look at it like is that, you know, the way it came across to me is like, I, I don't know why he should have even spoken like that. 
you know, I, I, what do I know? The moment you have an opinion, you have an opinion, she has an opinion, they have an division. All it now starts to do is wait for a trigger. And you don't need to plan to be the trigger. You just find yourself being triggered by stuff that ordinary should not have triggered you. Because you have an opinion. Being part of the church is evidence of your salvation. Being part of the church is evidence, is outworking of your salvation. You should not be comfortable in church meetings. There must be remorse. There must be brokenness. There must be heaviness of heart that you are missing the guarding of the saints. There should be. There should be. Next point. Coming to Christ is coming to his church. Coming to his church is coming to the leadership of that church. The leadership of that church is men. So when you come to Christ, you come to his body, which is the church. When you come to church, you come to the leadership of the church. And that leadership is made up not of angels. The leadership of the church is men. Christ, hear me carefully. Hear me very carefully. Christ is not the leader of the local church. He is the head of the church. We, we know. We agree. But the leadership of the local church is with men. Of course, men moved by the spirit of Christ. I mean, we don't even need to say that. Or else, what are you doing in church? So when you come to church, you come to the body, you come to the leadership of the body, and that leadership is men. And you must honor and respect that. Let's read the text I want to teach on. When we start discussing it, you will understand why I took my time to explain all the surrounding concepts. 1 Corinthians 11 is my text. 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together. Did you miss that? You come together. See why I took time to explain gathering and assembly? You see that they come together. That is assembly. Specific purpose for which the gathering was called. Not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18. For first of all, look at that line, verse 18. When you come together as a church. Start to pay attention to the emphasis of Paul in this text. 17. Come together. 18. When you come together as a church. As a church, I hear that there are divisions, schisma, that's the word, to tear a garment, rend it, to split. I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. 19. For there also must be factions, that's the word heresies, having an opinion. There must also be factions among you. Turn to Acts 15 and 5. Acts 15, 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, you see that? The word sect is the word heresies. Sect. Because it's really a different opinion that makes you form a faction or a sect within a, a, a part, inside a part, inside a part of the whole. That's the word heresies. See Acts 24, 5. Acts 24.5. Are you there? Yes, sir. For we have found this man a plague 
a creator of dissension. That's the word heresies. Right? Scroll down to verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, heresies. You see that? Acts 26 and 5. From verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent. This is Paul speaking to Agrippa, right? Remember Acts 26? Yeah. So he says, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem. All the Jews know, verse 5. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion. So among the Pharisees, there was another sect that had a deeper or differing opinion. And that's used of the word heresies. Right? Second Peter 2.1 But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive English word heresies, which is translated from heresies, or destructive opinions. Are you here now? Opinion. All it takes to sponsor division is to have an opinion. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. See Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. Works of the flesh, right? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. Works of the flesh. Now come back to 1 Corinthians 11. And let's go back to this text and see verse 19. Do you not understand what he says? For there must also be factions, heresies, among you. Do you get it now? What are those factions? Opinions. How should, how shouldn't we? Who said, who didn't say? That those who are approved may be recognized among you. 20. Therefore, when you come together, this is the third time he's mentioning it. 17, 18, and now 20. Emphasis. When you come together in one place. So we don't come together in the spirit. We come together in the spirit in one place. So we gather in spirit. It's not hearing things like, oh, now the church has gone virtual. In which Bible, which chapter, which verse? The church, the church of Jesus Christ is now virtual. Eh? So now technology can change the color of the body of Christ. That's how cheap the body is. See, you must not discern the church the way the world descends the church. Nobody stole the power of God from the church. The church gave it away. The church abdicated her power. The world world is not strong enough to rob the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, of her power. No, you had to be you that gave it away. The church is virtual now. Why, Why gather when I can stream? Why did he stay in heaven and stream his blood? Because he could have virtually died. Yeah, virtually, or sent a hologram. Why well, he could have virtually died? I mean, he's just he's just there with the father. Just talk about it, agree, call it done, plead the blood. It should only be that you cannot, by any means possible, be physically present. When you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. In other words, what you people are gathering to do. That's not the Lord's supper. For in eating. Shall I? Oh, man. The word supper is the word deipnon. D-E-I-P-N-O-N. Deipnon. D-E-I-P-N-O-N. Deipnon. That's the word supper. And it simply means a banquet 
or a late afternoon or evening meal. Supper. Late afternoon or evening meal. Look at me. There's nothing spiritual about it. It's food that people used to eat in the late afternoon or evening. John chapter 12, from verse 1. I think it's verse 2, but give me verse 1. I'm just putting out the word. So when we start putting it together, you understand. Oh. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, remember? The ex-dead guy, whom he had raised from the dead. There, they made him a deaf nun. Afternoon food or evening food. John 13, verse 2. Just follow, gently. Lord's Supper. The name, Lord's Supper, and what it causes in our heads. Supper, food, banquet. And supper, go, go to verse 1, just for context. Now, before the feast of Passover, before the feast of Passover, before the feast of Passover, we'll come back to this. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper, they've none, been ended. The devil, having already been put into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, to betray him. Supper, having ended. Verse 4. Rose from supper, that's Jesus, and laid aside his garments to wash their feet. Remember? Luke 14. Luke 14, 24. For I said to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper, my food, my meal. I said when I started last week that where a text of scripture is misinterpreted, a vital truth is lost. These guys came together, verse 17, came together, verse 18, came together, verse 20, and what did they come together to do or what did they do when they came together? To eat. What was the common denominator of their gatherings together in that context? Eat. Eating was something that people naturally do when they gather together. If we go to a party, that is a party and not an outreach. Whether we dance, whether we play tennis, whether we play game, see, last, last. We come for wedding reception. Photograph, toast, da, da, da. There is a specific purpose why we gather. We gather to depnon to eat because this food, this gathering that they were gathering to eat was not the Passover. The Passover is not called a supper, and the supper is not the Passover. So, first of all, Church of Jesus Christ, whatever Paul is writing about here is not Passover. Why do Christians have communion? Passover. Misinterpretation, vital truth, lost. What are these guys gathering to eat? So food. When we had the Lord's Supper once, we had fufu, we had bomo, we had plantain porridge. We had such crazy spirit energy. Just as we ate food of all manners. We had akara, we had bread, we had rice, we had fruits. We had a major spread. Depnon. Not Passover. Because Passover, listen to me. Passover was not a meal. I showed you Depnon. Now see Matthew 26 and verse 2. 
Before we even get to the fact that it, it never concerned you. You know that after two days is the Passover. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Not death, none. 17 to 19. Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And this is not death, no. It's not supper. And he said, go into the city. To a certain man and said to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. 19. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared for Passover. Luke 22 and 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. I'll explain shortly. I'll show you in Leviticus where the feasts were given. Yeah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread came, I think, a day before Passover. Passover came a day before Feast of Unleavened Bread. So over time, the Jews just got used to celebrating both of them together. Okay? I'll show you that in a bit. Feast of Unleavened Bread, Junior, which is called Passover. Are you here? Yes, sir. Now, look at Exodus 12. Who instituted Passover? God. Given through who? Given through who? Moses. To who? <laughs> to who? To the Jews. Exodus 12, 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Exodus 12, 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. So God institutes it by the hand of Moses. To do what? To commemorate Israel coming out of Egypt. Full stop. Passover commemorated Israel coming out of Egypt. Jews. Do you realize, Church of Jesus, do you realize that Israel did not pass over? Sir, it is the Lord. It is the angel that passed over. Yes, yes, yes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Where did Israel pass over to go? Who passed over? Of the Lord. In Romans 3, Paul said in his forbearance, he did what? The sins. Israel did not pass over. Israel came out of Egypt and entered Israel. They didn't pass over. It is the Lord's Passover. By which he adopted Israel as his body. As a type of what was to come. Are you here? Where did Israel pass over from? If you said, okay, I was commemorating the Red Sea, that would have made sense, but that's not what it is. Because the Passover didn't happen at the Red Sea. It happened in Goshen. Put the blood on your lintel post. And the angel of death comes. And sees the blood. He, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Who pass over. It is the Lord's Passover. For the Jews, separating them from the world, from darkness, from Egypt. There was light in Goshen, there was darkness in Egypt. Exodus 13. 13 6. You see why I told you I'm not teaching you anything new? It's there. 13 6. See. 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Somebody say unleavened bread. Leaven, very important. Leaven, the word leaven in the, in the Greek means to corrupt. And that's why it is yeast is used in relation to leaven. Means to corrupt or infiltrate. Or cause to change type. Unleavened bread. Uncorrupted bread. Bread without yeast. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Seven, verse seven. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. And no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. No yeast. See, this bread is so pure that even if you are eating bread without yeast, in your house, there should be no yeast. Are you following me? Not only is your bread without yeast, your house, around you, your life, like this, eh? no yeast. Hold on. 1 Corinthians 11. They are doing deipnon, supper. The bread they are eating there has to have yeast because it's bread that they eat regularly. That's number one. This bread that is unleavened, they take time to prepare it. Unleavened bread, they take time to process. You don't just get up. Does that make sense? So, so, so when you see in Acts 2 that they went daily from house to house breaking bread, it cannot be Passover. It cannot be unleavened bread because you can't just get up and just randomly break unleavened bread. It takes time to make unleavened bread. It takes time to make unleavened bread. So that breaking of bread in the New Testament was not referring to the unleavened bread. But this this bread is unleavened. Even in your house, there should be no leaven at all. Why bread? Leviticus 23. 23 and verse 4. From 4 to 6. These are the feasts of the Lord. Can you see that? Holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Not what your university does when they remember after a few years. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. 14th day. First month. Pay attention. Right? Next verse. 15th day. Same month. Feast of unleavened bread. 14th day. Passover. Day after unleavened bread. See why they interlapped? On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So Passover and unleavened bread interlapped. And this was not started by Jesus. I dare submit that Jesus as a Jew would have spent all his formative years every year in his family Keeping the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread because it was a Jewish custom. Jesus did not institute the Passover. Jesus met the Passover. The apostles did not institute the Passover. In fact, Sometimes Paul says, I'm trying to get to Jerusalem in time that I might keep Passover there because the Jews were keeping the Passover. It would therefore be a problem for you to conclude that Paul or Jesus were giving us an ordinance to keep something that he didn't start, didn't spiritualize, didn't endorse, he met, didn't change the name. When Jesus resurrected, Passover name did not change. Acts 2 and 1, Pentecost. I told you Pentecost means 50. Who checked it? 50. That's where you get that Latin that became Greek. Penta. Mono, die, tri, tetra, penta. 
in the Greek, hexa. So Pentecost in the Greek means 50. And Pentecost was a meal of rejoicing and feasting that happened on the 50th day after Passover or 49 days after Feast of Unleavened Bread. Does that make sense? That was Pentecost. Now in Acts 2 and 1, you see them gathered on the day of Pentecost or on the day that people gathered to eat in commemoration of Passover after 50 days. There's nothing spiritual about Pentecost. What's the festival? So by the time you say, I'm a Pentecostal, what you're saying is, I'm a person that enjoys eating and feasting. Because that day is mentioned just to enable you reference the kairos in which it happened. Do you get the point? That day, that event is mentioned as reference to trace when something happened. So Pentecost was just that feasting. It just so happened that that was the day the Holy Ghost was given. If anything, Paul starts to teach that these festivals are not binding on believers. Jesus rose. The terminology did not change. Jesus did not institute Passover. The apostles did not. So if they didn't, and this was not Passover, when the disciples of the church gathered, what did they gather to eat? And what did it signify? I will start to show you this on Tuesday. How for everything that happened in the life of Jesus, there's twofold significances to them. Jesus does something that is done. For instance, Caesar, he died for your sins. The reason why he died was for your sins. He was giving up for our trespasses. He died for your sins. Yes? That you may receive forgiveness of sins. That is why he died. And in the epistles, you see Paul referring to the death of Jesus as something you should do. You see him borrowing from the example of Jesus dying for you to teach you a principle of dying for your brother. And Jesus did not die as it were with the primary purpose of teaching you how to handle your brother. He died for your sin. But because he's Lord and Master Jesus, and there's so much virtue to draw from his life, Paul and even John and even James and even Peter borrow from the dying of Jesus to teach you how to give your life for your brother. Even though that was not what Jesus I am come, that he may have life. So for, just an example. So 1 John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, very popular scripture. You see that example. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also, using the laying down of Jesus' life as an example to teach you selflessness in the body. You see that principle? He died for your sins. But in dying for your sin, an example was also laid out that gives you a principle for Christian or believing conduct. Even though he didn't die as it were for that conduct. But the example of his death is borrowed to teach you a principle of conduct. Does that make sense? Are you sure you understand what I've just said? Even in forgiving, Paul says to the Ephesian church, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So he came to die for you to receive forgiveness of sins. And then that also became an example for you to forgive. It wasn't uh, Jesus, go and die for them. So they can learn how to forgive. 
No, for God so loved the world. Are you getting it? Yes, sir. But in dying to forgive you, it becomes an example of how you should forgive. In breaking his body and taking that and saying, this is my body, what does it show? What he did or the example that what he did teaches? Say with me, I walk in honor of the church of Jesus Christ. I discern his body. And I partake of it worthily. And therefore, every benefit that should accrue to me on account of the power of God working in the church comes to me and I enjoy the fullness of it in Jesus' name. Well, that's it for today's teaching. We trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the truth simply put or at war the church. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.